Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Here, picking up with part two of our little mini series on natural theology, trying to demonstrate here the uh, not only the Reformed orthodoxy but the particular Baptist orthodoxy of natural theology, or how natural theology emerged as an orthodox tenet of their theology. Uh, from the Belgic Confession to the Westminster Confession to the Westminster Larger Confession, which is what we looked at last time. I'll put a link to that show in the show notes here. I'm going to make, uh, we're going to look at the Savoy Declaration. I'll make a passing comment about the 1644, the first London Confession, before looking at the second London Confession, then we'll wrap up after that. But uh, first, let's look at the Savoy Declaration. Now, the Savoy Declaration is a confessional document wrought by the independents. These people were still Pado baptists They were not Baptists, uh, but they had an independent church polity. And as such, they were not Presbyterians, okay? So you have men in this camp like Thomas Goodwin and John Owen. These were independents. Um, uh, Jonathan Edwards was also a Savoy independent. And so this is a very important uh, confessional document. Uh, and this will show that, uh, you know, we looked at last time Reformed Orthodoxy. This will show us that uh, independent Paedobaptist Orthodoxy preserved a natural theology as well as they really just lift the first article of chapter one from the Westminster and appropriate it or put it, uh, kind of plagiarize it uh, for their own chapter one, article one in the Savoy Declaration. So let's look at that. I'll pull that up here. Um, let's see if I can't get a screen share. Here we go. Hopefully everybody can see that. If you make uh, the video big, uh, make it full screen, then you'll, you should be able to see that quite, quite easily. Um, and you'll see that this is basically a repetition of what the Westminster Confession has already said. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Okay, so you have the natural revelation leaving men inexcusable, which would only be possible if there was some kind of a natural theology. That is to say, if men were apprehending the truth of God revealed in creation, which is all natural theology has been historically defined to mean that it is the process of getting natural revelation from out there into here. Okay, that's natural theology. It's a science or a knowledge, as it were. We always have to make that distinction between knowledge and what is. Okay, so what objectively is is not determined by my knowledge of it. And if we identify those two things, like if we make natural revelation the same thing as natural theology or natural knowledge, then we conflate knowledge and being or knowledge with what objectively is and then guess what what objectively is becomes contingent in some way on our knowledge of it we don't want to go there because that will land us in subjectivism postmodernism and all of that so we maintain a distinction between what is and our knowledge of what is and that's where we get the distinction of natural revelation and supernatural revelation and our knowledge of it, i.e. natural theology and supernatural theology. Okay, so uh, here we have the same dynamic uh, as what is going on with the the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Larger Catechism, as Belgic Confession as well prior to, to that. Um, and uh, now, before we move on, I just want to make a quick remark concerning the 1644, which is here, you can see on the Reformed Reader, uh, there's really no statement on natural theology in the 1644. Um, that's not a big deal because in the preamble to the 1677, 
the authors, some of which actually signed on to the first London, are now signing on to the second London, and they're saying in the preamble, basically the first London was not sufficient, so we're, we're drawing up this lengthier confession to draw out our thoughts more deeply and, and more circumspectly. Okay, so there, there are obviously not things contained in the 1644 that are contained in the 1677, 1688, or 89, uh, Second London. So we're not going to mess with the 1644 too much. It was a pre preliminary confession, which means that it was a confession that was intended for a specific purpose, yet it was uh, sort of contrived on pragmatic um, uh, motivations. And um, whenever uh, the Baptists weren't forced to... Um, draw up a confession as concise as this one. They uh, came up with the Second London, which had more churches in support of it and also had some of the same uh, signatories as the 1644 did. Um, here, if we go to, and I'll use Arbka because, uh, because of their confession of faith uh, on there is nicely laid out. If we go there, we're going to see exactly what was printed in the Savoy, what was printed in the Westminster, and in substance, what was also printed in the Belgic Confession, which means that there's continuity of orthodoxy between all of these confessional documents on this matter right here, on this issue right here. And I tried to show in not the last part, but the episode that I did before I began this miniseries, where I talked about Thomas Aquinas, John Owen, and Stephen Charnock, tried to show how Thomas maintains the same order, and those following after him, even of the Protestant line, maintain relatively the same order. Thomas actually begins with the scriptures first as uh, the preeminent uh, source of knowledge, the necessary source of knowledge for men to know God properly. And following that same order, roughly, are the confessions, um, with the exception of maybe the Belgic Confession doesn't begin with scripture, um, but the Westminster Confession does, and the uh, the Baptist Confession does as well, the Second London here. But what you're going to see here is basically the same thing. Let me bring that up. Uh, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God is to leave men inexcusable. That's the same language we saw in the Westminster. Yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. This is a very common theme. And Owen understood, by the way, this language to mean a natural theology. Okay, so some people might look at this language, both of the Westminster and the Second London, They'll look at chapter one and they'll say, no, they're not talking about natural theology. They're talking about natural revelation. Okay. If you look back at the historical contextualization of these documents, you will see that there was always a distinction made between the book of nature and the theology of it. Okay. Or what is and our knowledge of what is. There's always that distinction made. And Owen assumes this distinction in his biblical theology. You'll see it laden through Stephen Charnock and, of course, Thomas Aquinas as well. So this is not, if you're, if you're following the rules of determining authorial intent, this is definitely not just talking about natural revelation. It's talking about man's 
knowledge of natural revelation, which was understood at the time to be a natural theology. Now, natural theology, as I've mentioned before, may or may not accomplish as much as Thomas thinks it accomplishes in the minds of the framers of these confessional documents or of those living at the time who were Protestant Reformed, uh, Independent, or Particular Baptist. Now, what I want to do uh, also is, uh, let me just kind of uh, minimize that, and uh, let me pull up, um, uh, let's see, Baptist Catechism. Uh, I have the copy of it right here next to me, but I uh, would, would like to show it up on the screen. Um, let's see. How may we know there is a God? Okay, question three. Remember in the, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, that was question two. Uh, and the larger catechism question two is, how doth it appear that there is a God? Uh, and here, let me pull this up for you here. And by the way, I'm looking at this on founders. This is Keech's catechism. Uh, question three of the Baptist catechism says, how may we know there is a God? Answer, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God. But his word and spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners Again, they're quoting or they're citing Romans 1, 19 and 20, just like the larger catechism, the Westminster Confession and the 1689 does, uh, cites Romans 1, 19 through 21 right here, if you see where my mouse is. Um, and then the larger catechism, there are no scripture citations there. But in the uh, Westminster or Confession, you see Romans 1, 19 and 20 appear once more. So they're relying on that passage consistently in order to uh, draw out kind of a, a theology or an, an idea or a an understanding of natural theology. Um, for the Reformed Orthodox, for the Independent Orthodox, for the particular Baptist Orthodox, natural theology just is what is described in Romans 1, 18 through 21. All right. It's really no different than that. And I would contend that Thomas as well understood it that way. In fact, he refers to Romans 1 when he is talking about knowing God through nature. So this is not something that is uh, a new development um, at some point in time after the Reformation or after the lives of the post-reformers. This is something that was very much so ingrained in their theology. Um, this is something that was appears in the Reformers. If you look at John Calvin, uh, his census divinitatis, he understands, he rejects Socinianism, he understands that man knows God through what has been made. That is a natural theology. Of course, Calvin, nor do the post-Reformers, follow Thomas on every single point. Nobody's arguing that. Again, Thomas is not uh, to be identified with the reformers or the post-reformed. There are some serious differences between the two groups, um, but there are also some significant agreements that I think we would do well to understand and embrace because of the truth of them. Uh, embrace them because they're true, um, if for nothing else, because they're true. 
I will also mention just before closing out here, uh, Stephen Charnock and others were accusing those who denied a natural theology or a natural knowledge of God uh, of being Socinians. It was a Socinian distinctive to deny natural theology or a natural knowledge of God. They would say that all knowledge is essentially um, revelation. If we have any true knowledge of God at all, it comes through supernatural revelation, and, and that's it. Um, and the the Reformed and the post-Reformed took issue with that. They rejected that. You can see that rejection in Francis Turretin very clearly. You can see it almost just as clearly in Stephen Charnock, two heavy hitters, in terms of articulating and, and writing about um, Protestant Reformed Orthodoxy. So, anyway, hopefully this was helpful. Um, again, I'm looking forward to that book by Dr. Jeffrey Johnson to come out. It's called The Failure of Natural Theology. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he has to say. Ink has been spilled critiquing natural theology. Um, and uh, But, you know, a lot of times when I think I've heard it all before, I'll, I'll, I'll witness a curveball, and, and hopefully that's the case here. I really hope that Dr. Johnson does not just recapitulate some of the bad views or some of the bad rebuttals to natural theology that have already been uh, set forth by men like Van Til, Gordon Clark, Francis Schaeffer, etc. at all. Um, so anyway, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your time.